APU. American Public University is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome to the School of Arts and Humanities at American Public University System. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today at the Everyday Scholar, we're talking to Dr. Jinder Raya, adjunct faculty in the School of Health Sciences at American Public University System. And today, we're talking about chronic disease management and healthcare disparities in minority communities. Welcome, Ginger. Hi, Bjorn. It's really great having you, and I'm excited about this conversation, and not to spoil anything, but I'll just jump into the first question is, what are the healthcare challenges in a place like El Paso, Texas? Well, in El Paso, Texas, we are a border community, and we tend to have a lot of uninsured patients. I think if we're lucky, we have patients who are on Medicaid and Medicare, and then we have a smaller proportion of private insured patients. So there's always the issue of insurance coverage. And then secondary, there's also the issue of access to healthcare. And with the physician shortage, the nursing shortage, it is a real issue to sometimes find the care that you need. And I think those are the preliminary issues outside of chronic disease management. Thank you. And can you give people some context of where El Paso is? and kind of the demographics of El Paso. I think most people have heard of El Paso, but they might not know specifics. So El Paso is a border community in Texas. We border with the Mexico border and New Mexico. We call it a tri-state area. The population in El Paso is primarily Hispanic. So I think it's like 85, 90% Hispanic. Uh, We're in a Southwest region, so it's a lovely dry desert area that we're we're located in. Thank you for that information. And just looking at some stats, in 2017, it says it's about 82.8% Hispanic, which I think for most people in the U.S., they don't live in communities that is predominantly Hispanic or any other population that we would typically call a minority, maybe except Brownsville, maybe not even, of course, San Diego, which is right on the border. And so in El Paso, what is it like living in a city that is majority minority? I think in the Hispanic culture, you know, we have a very strong kind of family community based kind of sentiment. You know, we're very close to each other. We're very connected. We're a very warm and generally uh, loving society. I know we have a a large military base here, and so we do have a lot of, uh, I don't want to say transitory, but we do have a lot of influx of different types of cultures that are constantly going through the community and adding to its beauty. So I do think that anyone I've talked to who's not from the area absolutely will attest to the fact that it is a very welcoming place and that people easily feel like they fit in here. And I have to completely agree. I was raised in El Paso. And so I spent probably ages five until 18 in El Paso. And it was a unique city. I loved growing up in El Paso. And it's one of those places that for some reason, the rest of the country doesn't quite pay attention to that much. When El Paso, I think as far as a community and how people live together and just come together as a community, the rest of the country can learn a lot from. 
this transitions to the second question. Uh, can you describe your experiences traveling around the U.S. coming from El Paso, especially when you travel for, say, healthcare and finance conferences? So I would say because I was born and raised in El Paso, I've spent my entire life here, I didn't realize that I was Hispanic. And that sounds silly to say, but it wasn't until, you know, later in life when we start to travel, you know, either with my family, but especially for work and professionally, that's where I really felt like the experience I had growing up here was that I had been very sheltered from the idea that I was a minority and that I was different because I was part of the majority in El Paso. So I think, you know, I have a, a healthcare background. I've been in healthcare for almost 15 years. Consequently, I have some finance background and I do travel for a credit union, which I'm on the board of directors for. I can tell you that when I go to healthcare conferences, there oftentimes I look around and I try to look for people that are like me. Is it just me that does that? Is everybody, you know, do that? But I kind of look around for other Latinos. And, and I, I realize that is a broad statement because Latinos come in, in all colors and it's not necessarily that I can, you know, easily identify them. But I do tend to look around for similarities for, for other people that look like me, right? And in healthcare, I find that I can find Latinos. It's not as easy for me to identify with others in a way that I can say, oh, they're like me. But where I really felt the difference, where I, I really felt different was, you know, when I travel for financial conferences, the majority of the time, I don't even default to looking for other Latinos. I'm just generally looking for women. Where are the women at these financial conferences? The last conference I went to, I think I was lucky if I counted a dozen women in several hundred member conference. So the majority of them were older white males generally. So that's kind of how I felt like I've experienced some differences coming from El Paso and realizing that I was a minority. And that's a great observation, very true observation. I, uh, growing up in El Paso myself, I um, am white and I grew up in El Paso. And I think that was an extremely formative and very important experience for me because I grew up the minority as the quote majority in El Paso. But then there's also the conversation you can have, of course, of being white still in El Paso, certain experiences you will and won't have <laughs> happen. But just the fact that in a city like El Paso, again, from my perspective, everybody basically got along. Everybody was there together. It's one of those cultural things that to me was very special and important. And I really liked how you talked about traveling around to the rest of the country. I had a similar experience when I went to college because I just expected the rest of the country to be as diverse and accepting as El Paso. And then when I went to other cities, especially, say, in the old Iron Belt, I'll just describe it that way, I experienced <laughs> not as accepting as, as a culture. And there's a few things I wanted to follow up on, including that. First, can you kind of give an idea of the incredible diversity that is in Hispanic um, culture in the sense that not everybody's from Mexico, not everybody's from Guatemala, from Costa Rica, um, or go down to Argentina, you know? And can you explain why it's important to have more representation, especially in a field like finance, where typically or historically, or for whatever reasons, more white males have gone into it, and how it would help to have other people, like Hispanic females, that go into finance? 
So I think as far as diversity, it's really interesting because, again, depending on where you see your ancestral origin coming from, that will very much shape how you identify. And I think part of being open and accepting to diversity is that we not try to stereotype or put people in a box and say, no, you're Hispanic or you're Latino, right? We have to be open to everybody's individual backgrounds. That's interesting because recently this kind of new terminology arises. I don't know how recent it is, but the concept of Latinx, where it's a fluid type of association so that you don't have to say Latina or Latino, it's just kind of an all-encompassing thing. It's important diversity-wise that we be open to everyone's differences. So that's the first point. Uh, My second point in regards to having more representation, I think that we see it everywhere in healthcare, you know, in finance, in healthcare for sure, when you have a physician who you associate with as being similar to you, I think your experience is different. Um, You kind of feel like you're able to express your concerns a little more easily and that healthcare professional will be able to identify with what you're speaking to. So I think in healthcare, it's very important that we continue to have more of a diverse background. Culturally, I think, you know, for Latinos, it's important for our healthcare professionals to understand that they're dealing with. And when we talk about chronic disease management, I think that'll be an important place to kind of expand on that concept. As far as financial conferences, so I'm on the board of directors for a credit union, which is essentially a co-op. And so my role on the board of directors is that I do what's best for our credit union members. And part of that is that we do have a diverse board of directors and that it not just be one specific demographic. We need to have a variety of board members because we make decisions financially and economically that impact the community and our members. And it's so important to have diversity at that point, because at that point I can say, hey, what about individuals who maybe are not as educated or what that does to them in regards to things like credit and and applying for loans and thinking about that conceptually in regards to a diverse background. So I feel like it's super important that we have diversity in healthcare and in finance, because ultimately we make the best decisions, you know, for the majority of people as opposed to just one subsect. And I really liked how you said that is having that diverse perspective or people helps you make better decisions. And it's one of those things where it's hard to imagine why people don't understand that besides for some reason, people can't quite understand multiple difficult topics at once. (laughs) And so that brings me up to privilege. So when you are, say, part of the majority, if you're white, say, even in El Paso, you oftentimes don't have to think about things. And what that means is as it's a privilege to just not have to worry. Now, for other minority communities, (laughs) this sounds simplistic, but why do they have to worry about things? You know, I've had the discussion of privilege with a lot of my peers in healthcare and in finance. And what I tell them, especially if they're not a minority, is that the concept of privilege is that there's nothing wrong with the fact that you have privilege. But what's key is that you understand the role that you play because you do have that privilege. And when you think about privilege, it's not a 
a choice per se, like, you know, and wake up one day and say, okay, I'm privileged, right? It's, it's something that has been allotted to you, you were born with it, either because of the way you look, your socioeconomic background, there's nothing wrong with privilege in it of itself, but you need to understand and recognize when you do have it. Because at that point, you understand why others do not and why they're not afforded the same opportunities as you. Second chances, availability, access, you know, that is the role that privilege has. And it's important that we recognize when we have it. And that's a really great explanation. I always like to describe it as, for me, I've recognized my privilege in the sense that I grew up in, in this country. I grew up in El Paso, so I'm white. Typically, Finnish, Swedish, Norwegian kind of put those countries together. That's kind of what I look like. <laughs> and so I've been able to walk in and out of restaurants, in and out of department stores, and nobody will notice me. And so in a sense, that is a privilege because then the cops don't notice me. There's no negative attention that is put upon me. And that is actually a privilege versus for, say, other populations, unfortunately, because of bias, people will be noticed in the wrong ways. And there's many other studies, and I wish I could rattle them off, but I can't, where people's biases when they see, say, a, a white face versus a different face, they'll assume more wealth or, unfortunately, even more intelligence just because of the biases we have, which come from a culturally imbalanced world. Would you want to add anything to that? No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think that growing up in El Paso, I think the one time that I kind of noticed that variance, like if I go into a store, people will frequently speak to me in Spanish. And that is not my primary language. It, it's absolutely something that I work on improving every day. But there are times that people just talk to me in Spanish because they assume that I'm primarily a Spanish speaker. So I think that's what your example kind of reminds me of. And I do feel it in some ways. Yeah, and and it's one of the challenges. Um, and part of the reason that I was interested is is I originally read your blog post about microaggressions, and that's one of the things that we always have to think about. Is I think sometimes in general, white folk don't want to think about or accept the fact that they do have privilege because, like you said, they've worked hard their entire lives. Nobody gave them a check for a million dollars, and then suddenly they're rich. But it's not about, per se, working hard, or it's not about how wealthy or not wealthy you are. It's about existing in a country where, unfortunately, the way you look either gives you some advantages or disadvantages. Is there any way you can think of how your average person can work on these biases to try to help out in some way? So, you know, in, in that blog post actually about microaggression, uh, I frequently write about the role of emotional intelligence. And essentially, this means that, that you're reflecting on a situation, you know, how you're reacting to things. And part of being an emotionally intelligent leader is that you also reflect on your privilege, on your bias. And we all have bias, right? We all have some level of you know, we've been conditioned, it's part of our culture, whatever it is, we all have some level of bias. And so being emotionally intelligent leaders, I, I think that it's important that we do recognize that we have bias and or that we have privilege. And this kind of helps to open up the idea that you're aware of it, you're self-aware of it. And at that point, you can reflect on how others are acting or reacting and that you can understand and reflect on why 
they are having that reaction. Uh, so in that blog post where I talk about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and about how all lives matter is a microaggression and it's meant to diminish or to make someone else feel inferior. And the role that you play as an, an emotional, intelligent leader in, in understanding how you your perspective frames that. So I think calling it out, understanding it is the first step in understanding your own bias. Today we're speaking to Dr. Ginger Raya, and we'll be right back after a short break. Technology has created huge job growth in the fields of supply chain management and reverse logistics. With a degree from American Public University, you'll have the knowledge you need to help your company expand and to help improve its profits. Take the first step to prepare for a career in transportation and logistics management. Apply today at study at apu.com. And we're back with Dr. Jinder Raya here at The Everyday Scholar. And let's jump into the third question. How has COVID-19 complicated access to healthcare? Example, amplified the need for chronic disease management, such as diabetes, obesity, heart disease. So we definitely know that you are more susceptible to have adverse complications from COVID-19 if you do have those type of chronic disease management issues like diabetes, like obesity, like heart disease. And I feel like in a community like mine, that has definitely amplified it. For example, our free testing for COVID, now they're doing like daily testing at rec centers and they only have 500 tests every day. And so, you know, you drive around and the line goes for miles and miles of people needing to get access. And when I saw this, my first kind of question was, well, why not just go to your PCP or, or, you know, call your urgent care to see if they have testing. And recently, I myself was afraid that I had been inadvertently exposed. So I went ahead and called my local urgent care, went in, got ready to get tested. And in the period where I was waiting, you know, I had somebody, I, I heard a patient come in and ask what the cost of the COVID test would be if she didn't have insurance. And the receptionist told her that it would be about $250 if she wanted to get tested that day without insurance. And I was astounded because $250, you know, for someone who doesn't have insurance, there's a lot of implications just for that. And that's a lot of money for most people. So it, it definitely makes sense, you know, why people are opting to get the free test, you know, why they're waiting instead of getting tested quickly so that they can try to manage their symptoms, manage any implications of this. Again, if you don't have insurance and you get a positive test result, what are you going to do if you need care? You're going to hold off till the last minute because you don't want to go to the emergency room or you don't want to take the hit for the cost of an emergency room or an urgent care. For most of us who have insurance, that cost is even substantial, right? It's $250, $500 to go to the emergency room. Now, imagine if you don't have insurance. So I think that's definitely amplified the situation. Again, there's not enough tests, I can tell you, in my perception, in my community. And I feel like if COVID was not, you know, front and center right now, there's so many more issues that we have. Like, there's such a limited amount of physicians. I can imagine in any community, much less in a border community like we have in El Paso. You know, I frequently hear people or patients talking about how they wait all day to be seen by their internal medicine physician. They're likely to be there hours, hours in a room full of other patients, 
you know, they're lucky if they get a five, 10 minute face to face with a physician. And then at that point, what happens, you know, you get lost in the mix. And I feel very fortunate that I am in healthcare, you know, I'm able to kind of direct my family, like where they should go, you know, if they have problems with their refills. But a lot of people don't have that. And it's just amplified the situation in my mind to just the fundamental issues that we have with access and not enough access points. And there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) And I completely agree. I mean, one of the things, obviously the free COVID tests are important, but even I think yesterday I saw that there's an eight hour wait in El Paso for the free COVID tests. I mean, Obviously, you need to get tested if you feel like it, because if you don't and you do have it, you're going to spread it to other people. And that's only going to tax the healthcare system more. And that's not even talking about post-COVID syndromes and post-COVID complications, which can go on for months and months, which will tax the system even more. And even if when you do have insurance, and I'll say even my family, when something happens, we're like, okay, how much is this going to cost us? Because like you said, $250,500 is, well, it's, I guess, better than 2000 But if your family is poorer, $200 is a no-go most of the time. So they're not going to do that. It reminds me of discussions of like higher education when people are like, well, you know, it'll just be $200 for like some extra textbooks or something like that. And for poorer families, they haven't budgeted in that $200. So access to higher education could be killed by a $200 bill. And with healthcare, it's so important because... If you get COVID, you could spread it. So even if you're, say, in your 30s or 40s and you're asymptomatic and you're fine, you could spread it to your grandparents. And they're the ones who are truly at risk. Or you could spread it to somebody who has healthcare complications and they could be at risk without getting political at all. This is one of the, I would say, great shortcomings of this pandemic is access to testing to ensure that we at least know who has it and where we need to go with that. Is there anything else you'd want to talk about, about as far as chronic disease management, say in El Paso that you see? In El Paso, I think with us uh, culturally, like our food, you know, is not necessarily the healthiest. A lot of times when we're talking about obesity and diabetes, there's a need for nutritional counseling. And again, that's another example of limited access, right? We don't, even as a healthcare system, you may not have an abundance of nutritional counselors available to help your patients. It's such a big problem. It's such a cyclical problem. I'm sure that our community in that sense is not greatly different from other communities, but chronic disease management is absolutely an issue here. And diabetes, obesity, heart diseases is absolutely prevalent. And I feel like that's making it very complicated in a COVID environment. No, I completely agree. And this transitions to our last question. Uh, We're both from El Paso. And so what else would you like to add about growing up in El Paso and why it's such a unique city within the U.S.? So I'm not proud of it, but I'm a foodie. And I have to tell you that, you know, in El Paso, we have, again, a wonderful culture, a welcoming community, but we have some of the best food. And I think that's definitely something that helps to make others feel welcome, that we have that similarity, that we can appreciate things like good food. I also feel like growing up in El Paso definitely gave us access to that tri-state blend of culture and that you do have access to a lot of Mexican influence, you know, as far as culture, as far as the food, things like Dia de los Muertos, things like that, that are very enriching and that anyone can enjoy and value and understand. 
And even with our New Mexico neighbors, they also have a very different cultural vibe, definitely Southwest. But, you know, there you see a very different type of yeah, Spanish, uh, Spaniard type influence. You know, their food is regionally uh, very different. I love that there's all these vineyards and all this greenery and New Mexico is just such a beautiful, lovely place also to be able to take advantage of their culture and very blended and just a great place to live. I would completely agree. Uh, growing up in El Paso, just wonderful. The food has been the best. The Hispanic food in El Paso has been the best I've ever had in this country. And I've lived in Arizona now for a while and uh, it doesn't really compare to El Paso. And New Mexico is also just a great, great state. And Arizona, where I live now, is also interesting, but it, it's just not the same as El Paso. And I, when I look at the demographics, I was in Tucson for many years, and that's about 50-50, and I'm in Phoenix, the Phoenix area, where it's about 40% Hispanic. It's a different experience than living in El Paso. In Arizona, I'll just say having certain complications or Again, try not to get too political. Having a having a, a sheriff like Joe Arpaio for 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 for, for so many years complicated things. <laughs> and this leads me to my final question: Where is the status of say like Hispanic political power in the U.S.? Because it seems like in the general U.S. political conversation, there's more talk about black people going into political power on the national level emphasizing, say, Hispanics going into political power, even though the Hispanic population is the second most populous in the country? I think that's a great question. As far as like civic engagement and civic leadership and the role in growing that interest, I think has been very prevalent, especially in the current political climate. I definitely feel like as a Latina, the focus has been more like, hey, we need more women to run for office. So I definitely feel like firsthand I've felt the implications of that. I have to tell you that my teenage son was recently selected to participate in the National Hispanic Institute, and I wasn't quite sure what to expect from that experience. But he has come back to us after like each of his sessions. He gets ready for something called the Great Debate. And they talk about social justice and social, like the social implications of not having representation in a political sense for the Latino community. So I was very taken back because, you know, my son's a 14 year old and he's talking about social inequity and social injustice. And so I've been very blown away about what that kind of access to knowledge has done for a younger community. So I'm very proud, you know, I'm very happy that perhaps this political climate has encouraged more of that type of participation, but I'm very excited about what our youth potentially are being exposed to and how living through this political climate, living through all these social injustice movements is framing their perspective. And so that leaves me with a lot of hope and a lot of optimism as to what we will continue to see, you know, as we ourselves age in this community. So I'm excited. That is exciting. You know, it reminds me, and I need to find these stats exactly, so I apologize if I say them incorrectly. But since the founding of the U.S., there's been, I think, like 11,000 representatives to Congress, you know, House of Reps and Senators. And there's like a stat where like 98% of those people have been white. 
And so historically, if you look at the country, it's generally been represented by white folk, even though there's been plenty of other people in this country. And so today, because of the protests and greatly sparked on by the killing of George Floyd, there seems to be a change in the conversation, which is only for the better. And the best way to make changes is for people to get involved. And that's so great with your teenage son because political power, even though, or I just say political power, political representation is important because it changes the dialogue. Most importantly, locally, people oftentimes focus on national elections, but the local elections, that's really where the meat and potatoes are. And so it's so important to get engaged locally. And, and, you know, Bjorn, when I think about the political arena and even what it means to run for something like the local school board, there's an element of funds that you need to have access to, which, in my opinion, keeps a lot of people from running for office. Like at one point I was thinking like, oh, maybe I should run for, you know, the school board. The next time it was up for election. And I had reached out to, you know, a friend of mine whose husband had run for district attorney just to ask her like, well, how much money, you know, and she's like, oh, you need like eight to $10,000 just to start. Plus you're going to need a fundraise. Like when you talk about privilege and socioeconomic implications, that's a lot of money. Do I want to invest $8,000 of my own personal funds and then to possibly lose an election? You know, so that, again, I think is a big reason why a lot of people don't run for office and aren't more positioned to take over those political roles because of the how privilege and socioeconomics plays a role in even getting you through that door and to be set up for success. And that's, uh, I completely agree. It's one of the the privilege, going back to privilege, like you said, political dynasties are dynasties because they have a last name that people recognize. And oftentimes rich folk go for a political office because eight to $10,000 is nothing to them. But if you have a family where they're hesitant to spend $200 on a COVID test, or if $200 can crash them out of college, not because they don't want to, because they just don't have $200. How are they then going to run for office? And there's plenty of examples of people who have worked hard, and this is not about working hard. People whom, say, are on the lower end of the economic status work hard. They work harder than I can imagine what I work in my office. I type away all day at the computer. That's working hard, I guess, but it's not working hard. And being able to go from, quote, poor to rich or to become a in having political uh, power is rare. And I would say, unfortunately, the powers that be like to say, look, here's an example of this person. They did it. Well, sure. But let's also look at this 80% of all the other people who had that privilege and used that privilege to then get elected. <laughs> so Ginger, thank you so much. Any final words today? No, I just want to thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking about the community and ways in which we can recognize privilege, be emotionally intelligent, and help to create a better environment for everybody. Excellent. Thank you. And it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. Today, my guest was Dr. Ginger Raya from the School of Health Sciences at American Public University System. And my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer here at The Everyday Scholar. For more information about our university, visit us at study at apu.com.
APU. American Public University.